0: Now, last week we talked about God's general revelation. Now, when we talk about God's general revelation, what we're talking about is creation. We're talking about the way God made things. And uh, we noted last week that when we look at God's general revelation, there are five things that we can see that tell us that there is a God. I I mean, God says, look at what I've made, and you can tell and you can see that I'm alive, that I'm real. That's what he virtually says to us. He says it in uh, Psalm 19 verses 1 through to verse 2, says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech, and night unto night they give knowledge. And so the Bible actually says creation is actually talking, you know. You can actually go out there, look at a tree, and it's actually talking to you. It hasn't got a mouth, but it talks to you. The trees and the flowers, these clouds, the galaxies, when you look at biology and look at all the cells in the body, they're all talking to you. They're telling you something. They're not using speech, but they're showing you something of the handiwork of God. They're showing you something of God's uh, nature and His character. And so much so that the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 20, it says that every man is without excuse. Every man in the world is without excuse because the evidence of his presence, the evidence of God's presence is so strong and the evidence of his nature is so strong that in creation there's enough testimony to send you to hell if you don't listen. That's what he's saying. So we looked last week and we saw that um, things like the stories of nations like Israel, uh, you just can't understand what's happening in Israel unless you start to understand that there is a God who actually said, that, you know, I'm going to appoint." I, I thought about Israel. I thought it's a, it's a really ancient, ancient race. If you think about d- different people, you know, the Phoenicians are no longer with us. The Babylonians are no longer with the, uh You know, you, you go back through races time and time and they've gone. But, you know, the Jews... They're still here. And the Jews go all the way back, right the way back to the book of uh, Genesis when they, when they began. And, and so it's like these people are ancient people and they have some ancient beliefs. And there's a real testimony. You, know, you can't understand what the problem in the Middle East until you understand that actually God set the problem up. There is a God. Look at the Middle East. There's something there that's caused this problem. Every man's conscience tells us that there is uh, a God. You know, you have a conscience. Every person in this world has a conscience. Everybody has a testimony that it's done something right or something. You've got that conscience inside. Where did that come from? It's an immaterial part of you. It just tells you you broke the rules. Every man has that. That's a testimony that there is a God, that there's an absolute, and that you've broken the absolute. The amazing providence of God, all the laws of nature, the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the laws of motionary pl- planets, motions, the laws of uh, logic, all those laws that are uh, laws of chemistry, all those laws that have been, that keep the place going, that keep it all revolving the way it 's meant to be after the supposedly big bang, all the laws were there and kept everything in order. they speak to us of a, an orderly, intelligent designer they don 't speak to us of a chaotic beginning. Or, of an explosion out of matter that created some sort of life everything in life has order design and purpose about it and that's value we look at culture and we see cultures every culture under under heaven is has got a religion that's trying to get back to god trying to find a way back to god Every culture that you look at, every, every tribe, every nation, they've got a belief, we were with God, we're trying to get back to God, whether it be Buddhism or whether it be um, Taoism, whether it be um, Hinduism, they, they've all got a way back to God. It just shows us that we must have been with God beforehand, we fell away from God, how do we get back with God? So they, they're all there, all of those things are, uh, are there, they show us through just general revelation that there is a God. Today I want to talk to you more specifically though, I want to talk about special revelation. Now when we talk about special revelation, we're talking about the fact that the Bible is the word of God. The Old Testament and the New Testament as you have it is God's special word to you. It's like God wrote a book and this is the book that God wrote. God wrote a book over many, many years and he wrote a book to let us know how to get back to God. You know, we had this problem where we fell from God. God wrote a book and said, this is the way to get back to me. This book is called the Bible. That's a very bold statement. And most of the kids at school would tell you, well, you believe that the Bible is God's word. Why do you believe that? And they would have dozens of reasons why you shouldn't believe that the Bible is the word of God. So today I want to deal with five just five. There are ten. I'm going to deal with another five next week. I'm just going to deal with five reasons why you can, you can confidently assert that the Bible is actually the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, and you can have confidence and faith and trust in it. I want to give you five proofs today that the Bible is the Word of God, and then next week I'll give you another five. The Bible says in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is God-breathed. God breathed it into prophets. He spoke it into prophets and the prophets wrote, moved by God, wrote the scripture down, wrote the, the, the text down. God breathed, it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work the Bible is God's pattern for us the Bible tells us how we ought to live the Bible tells us what we ought to say what we ought to do and it gives us a clear indication of how to live so we want to sort of give some sort of proof for that I mean it's I believe the Bible is God's word and here's the reason why can we be confident You know, the world is so unbelieving. Everybody doubts it. You know, there's so many changes taking place. And as you're facing those people, as you sit and talk with those people, if you don't have your head together about why you believe the word of God is the word of God and you can't tell them why, then you feel like you are intimidated and you're running around around in circles and it feels like, look, I mean, I know it is because I believe it is, but I don't know why it is. So here today we're going to give you five reasons why. So the first one is... I believe the Bible because of the preservation preservation of manuscripts. Now, I want to give you a little bit of information about manuscripts. We'll look firstly at the New Testament, and then we look at the Old Testament manuscripts. The Bible was written by 44 guys over 1,500 years. It's just an amazing book. It has an amazing continuity through it. There aren't any contradictions in it. It just goes through, and it's... It just says the same thing. This is how man can get back to God. Now, the New Testament, there is more evidence for all the things that happen in the New Testament than for anything else. If you look, you, you can go and you, you read about Caesar. Caesar lived at about 100, uh, you know, 100, written, the, uh, what, what was written about Caesar between 100 and 44 BC. And you, you hear about Caesar in, in history. But there's only 10 manuscripts that actually point to his existence. They only found 10 pieces of writing that actually tell us that Caesar existed and that his life was there. You you heard about Plato. Plato Plato's a Greek philosopher. And, And we think, you know... We, we read about Plato, uh, university talks about Plato, they discuss his philosophies of life, yet there's only seven pieces of writing that come us and, and give us proof. Of, uh, Homer is another one that people talk about. There's 643. But when it comes to the New Testament, how many different uh, manuscripts are there? There's 24,000 different manuscripts pointing to the fact that these things happen. Now, this is where it really becomes sticky. If there is so many manuscripts... If there are so many manuscripts showing us that that's the Bible, surely somewhere along the line with 24,000 manuscripts, the different people who were copying the manuscripts would have said, you know what, I don't like that bit about you know uh, divorce or I don't like that bit about sexual immorality. So what I'm going to do is when I'm copying this down, I'm going to write my own little words in there and change them somewhat. Now you think with 24,000 manuscripts we're going to find a lot of shifting a lot of changes you know that's going to tell us that 24,000 and look you can't even make up your mind what you really want to say 24,000 different pieces of manuscripts sitting there will they all say the same thing yes they do 99.5% agreement you don't understand what that is 24,000 pieces of writing All saying the same thing. And the only differences that are listed in those things are spelling. Like, you know, how do you spell color? C-O-L-O-U-R. That's if you're Australian. How do you spell it if you're American? C-O-L-O-R. Well, that's spelling. That's all. And that's all the differences are. That 0.5% is the differences of spelling in the text. Amazing. Amazing. Here, twenty-four thousand manuscripts saying this is what's happened in the New Testament. This is who Jesus is, and only point five on spelling differences. That's got to tell you something. That's got to tell you something. You couldn't do that if you tried. And yet, that's what the Bible shows us. But what about the Old Testament? Well the Old Testament is kind of like the same I mean we've got a lot of time in the Old Testament We've got thousands of years in the Old Testament Because like I said to you you know, Moses lived a long long time ago And he wrote the book of Genesis, Exodus lived. And you know it's had to be copied For hundreds, for thousands of years To get us to the place Where we have the Bible today It's got to have been copied So of course over the period of time How can we be sure that the Bible That we have in our hands today Is the actual words that Moses wrote When he wrote. Wrote the Bible, the the book, the the, the books in the Old Testament. How do we know that the the things that Isaiah wrote are the words that I in our book today are the words that Isaiah actually wrote in history? I mean, hundreds of years before Christ, he wrote these things. How can we be sure that they're the same? Well, that was the big problem. I mean, people people used to criticise Christianity and say, look, we don't really, the the, the earliest Christian manuscript you have is around about 125 AD. That's 125 after Jesus died. So, you know, that's we're not really convinced that there hasn't been a lot of changes in the Old Testament until a couple of Arab boys were playing near the Dead Sea. In 1947 and in 1947 they started throwing rocks into a cave and as they threw rocks into a cave they heard this bang and a breaking sound of breaking clay vase and they thought we have found treasure so they climbed up there and all they found was some old scrolls when they pulled the scrolls out and took them they found 900 pieces of literature that had been stored in caves And then they dated and they were old um, manuscripts from the Old Testament, like the book of Isaiah, the whole book of Isaiah, written in a scroll. Like Jesus opened up the scroll of the book of Isaiah and read out in in Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord me, he says, today this this has been fulfilled. He he opened a scroll like this. He read it up and opened out of the scroll like this. And here it was, a scroll that Jesus would have used. And then they dated the scroll. To find out how old the scroll was, because they wanted to find out how old the scroll was, because they wanted to compare that scroll with our Bible to see if it was the same. And it was a thousand years before Christ. So it was there's a thousand year gap between it. And you know what they found? They found that there was no difference in the text, that it hadn't been changed. That guys hadn't got there and changed bits to suit themselves and then it changed down through times. So they found that the, di- the difference between them, it was, there was no difference. It was just, again, spelling differences and that was it. It was the same essentially right through. Amazing providence. Now, now, why would God do that? Why would he save it from changes? Well, there's possibly two reasons why God would actually make sure that the Old Testament changed. And that is because he wanted to make sure that we weren't deceived. The other thing is he had a method that these guys used to use that when they actually started writing and, and copying the text down, they were so particular and so uh, so uh, meticulous about what they were doing, they would make no mistakes. They checked and cross-checked and checked so that the scroll that they had finished was as good as the scroll that they had just left so that they made sure there was no changes. And they proved that that's actually what they did, because they could now look at the, old, the, the oldest one that they had, and not 125 AD, and they could look at the one that 1,000 a years predated it, and they said, you know, there's no differences, but this is a copy of this one over the time. Why would God do that? Because God's book is an important book, and God wants us to understand that when he spoke, he spoke it, and the words that you have today are the same words that were spoken back then. and he, show, he, he You know, people look at it and think, how can that be? Because it's the Word of God. You know, the Book of Mormon's been changed thousands and thousands and thousands of times from the beginning of when Joseph Smith wrote it, because they had so many crazy things in there, they changed it. All the other, they changed it all the time. The Word of God has had no changes. Second reason I believe that the Bible is the word of God is the evidence of miracles. You know, when Jesus came and he laid his hands on people, it's almost like that God said, you know, it's not enough that Jesus would come and start start talking, you know, Jesus stand up and say, well, I want to talk to you about the way to life, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I'll let you know that you're in danger, you're going to go to hell if you don't get yourself right with God, you know come to me and I'll, you know, what signs do you show us that we should believe in you? And Jesus would lay his hand on a blind person and his eyes would be covered, you know. He would do miracles. Do so many miracles that the Pharisees of the day, and Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees, in John chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and he wanted to talk to Jesus about um, what Jesus was saying, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who have come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. You see, they had that sense that God was with Jesus because Jesus was performing those miracles. We're told in Hebrews, and the the Hebrew writer to the Hebrews, he was writing to the Jews, and he's telling the Jews and warning the Jews not to leave their faith in Jesus. And he says these things. He says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard heard it, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles, and with the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. He actually said, you know, God has actually put a seal on this, And showed you that he's really serious about this by doing signs and wonders and miracles that you could never do. He's saying God is with us. So he did these miracles. You know, the the most amazing miracle that there ever was, was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And the, the, the amazing thing is that, you know, you would think that if it never happened, you'd keep it all quiet. Well, not, not Paul when he writes Corinthians. He, actually, he names the people who've seen Jesus alive after he rose from the dead. Now, why is that sort of extraordinary? Because he actually validates the fact that there are alive people today who have seen Jesus rise from the dead. So he's writing it to the Corinthians. He says, look, if you go back and talk to this person and this person and this person, they actually saw the risen Lord. You can go and verify it. Don't believe my word about it. I'm telling you, the people that saw Jesus raised from the dead—that was a miracle that was confirmed. If Jesus didn't rise from the rise from the dead, we, we're believing in vain. We, we have no confidence in what we believe. He says, "Go and check it out." I'll tell you the names of the people who saw Jesus rise from the dead. And in First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, he actually tells the names of the people who saw Jesus rise from the dead. He says, "Go and check it out." The interesting thing about these witnesses who would validate that Jesus was rise had risen from the dead, it. They were dying for their faith. They got martyred for their faith. They they weren't martyred because they believed some kooky teaching. They were martyred because when it came and they had to say whether Jesus was Lord or whether Caesar was Lord or whether they believed that Jesus was alive, they said, we cannot deny the truth. We have seen Jesus alive. Jesus is alive. Well, that's going to cost you your life. And they would die for their faith. They believed it, they saw it, they knew it was true and nothing would convince them. You could threaten them and say, I'm going to kill you. It didn't matter. They died for their faith because it was real. Why would you die for a lie? If Jesus gave the miracles because he wanted you to express faith in the word of God. Jesus preserved the word of God so that you have the word of God so that you can read the word of God so that you can learn from the word of God so that you can have faith that this is actually God's word that the words that are in these pages when they speak into your heart and God speaks into your life God is actually speaking to you right now today the word is still the same this world doesn't believe it but it can't answer the questions of miracles and it can't answer the questions of how we got to get it today How did it come? Some people deny that Jesus even existed. And that's just gone to stupidity now because you're just going to say, well, Jesus didn't even exist. I don't even believe it. I don't even believe the history books. It's just crazy. You've just gone stupid now. Another reason why I believe is because of the incredible prophetic evidence in the word of God. So what happened is, and I'll read this passage of scripture from Second Peter. It says in Second Peter chapter 19, ch- sorry, chapter 1 verses 19 to 21. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in the darkness. So he's actually, Peter's actually saying, listen, prophecy you need to pay attention to. This is important. This is a proof for the fact that God wrote this book prophetic words you know God said that a few years later it happened you know how do we know that it's God is true well God told us that this and this and this was going to happen and then we waited a little bit of time and it happened just like he said it was that's the prophecy what's the prophecy God says something is going to happen next week and it happens just like he said next week and you say well that person must have been hearing from God Well, how would he know otherwise? No one knows the future. Oh, well, you can go and look at your your stars and read that, but anybody could read those. It's nonsense. But now let's get something really specific. Let God say something really specific about the person who's going to come, the name of the person. There's lots and lots of prophecies in the Bible that we could talk about. I could talk about Cyrus in the Old Testament. Isaiah wrote his name down 400 years before he actually was born and said he was going to be a king and he was going to come and do this. Somebody must have gone to Cyrus when he was born and there was a king and said, you know, there's a, it's written about you in Isaiah. This is what you're going to do and showed him. And Cyrus said, well, let's go and do that then. How, how did God know? How, how did God move Isaiah to write about Cyrus? It's a prophetic thing. Peter says you should have listened to these things. There's a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts until you start to believe. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. A a man didn't sit down and sit there and go, I wonder what I can get going next week, you know, a prophecy, you know, and, and projected it. No, God spoke to these men. God spoke to them and a prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brought them along and said, now you need to write this thing. This is what I'm going to do in the future, so you need to write it down. And these guys said, okay, God, I'll write it down for you. So that's what exactly what they did. I mean, the most amazing prophecy that uh, we can see that is fulfilled is probably in the life of Jesus. Now, a guy called um, Peter Stoner in uh, an article called Science Speaks in Moody Press in 1963. So it's an old article, but it doesn't matter. It's still a valid one. said that by using modern science of probabilities in reference to eight prophecies. So we're talking about eight prophecies. You just take eight prophecies. There's many more than eight prophecies about Jesus coming. So the Old Testament written before Jesus came, Isaiah and other prophets all wrote. uh, The psalmist David wrote. He wrote. Uh, And he prophesied about Jesus coming. So let's take eight prophecies. Let's take eight prophecies that Jesus couldn't fulfill by thinking, oh, well, I better do that because I'm the Messiah. Uh, You know, that he's hanging on the cross, his nails and hands are. Uh, his nails, are, hands are nailed to the cross, and his feet are nailed. I mean, he couldn't actually do that. He couldn't actually arrange that. That had to be done to him. You know, they cast lots for his clothes underneath, and they they divide them up. Well, he couldn't actually arrange that. You know, it had to be done for him. You know, he couldn't arrange the fact that somebody was going to spear him in his side. That had to be done to him. He couldn't actually arrange that. He was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he couldn't actually arrange that. It had to be done to him. All these things. Were, so let's take eight prophecies, just eight. What's the odds if a man in time, you just put eight prophecies in a, in a, in a lot of documents for a 1400, 1,400 years and a man just comes along, just happens to do those eight things? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Oh, fluke. It's just a fluke. It just happened like a fluke. What's the odds of that happening? Well, it's 10 to the power of 17. Well, how big is 10 to the power of 17, Mark? 10 to the power of 17 looks something like this. If you take silver coins and you put them all over the, the state of Texas, silver coins to the state of Texas, 20-cent pieces or a dollar coin, um, and to the two, te- two feet deep. So it's up to your knees. So I've got this guy standing up to his waist in, in coins in the state of Texas. Put a blindfold on him, stir up all the coins, and then say, now, buddy, you go in there and you pick up one coin and tell me it's the coin. If he's able to walk into the, and find anywhere he goes there, bend down, pick up a coin and says, this is the coin. That's the odds, the probability of Jesus fulfilling eight of those prophets' prophecies. It's impossible. We know it's impossible. You know why it's impossible? Because science says that 10 to the power of 15 is the sign of impossibility. That's the probability of impossibility. The science says, if it, if it, if, what's the odds of you actually winning that? Well, they say, well, the odds of you actually winning that is 10 to the power of 15. Well, don't do it because 10 to the power of 15 is the, the probability of impossibility. It's not going to happen. You're never going to get it. So, Jesus fulfilling 8 is 10 to the power of 17. Well, let's put all of the scriptures in there. What do we get then? we get 10 to the power of 157. For Jesus to come and fulfill all prophecy that was written about him, it would have been 10 to the power of 157. I want you to get that. That's just blowing your head right off. They said, there's there's no way that you can understand that. Jesus was the one who came to fulfill everything that was spoken. I came to fulfill the Lord. He said, I've not come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. He came to do everything that was written about And then doing everything that Jesus, God prophesied, this is what I'm going to do. He gave over 48 prophecies. Jesus came and did all, every one of them. And we say, well, maybe it could have been just a fluke. I don't think so. It's 10 to the power of 157. Jesus is the one. That's why I believe you turn your heart against Jesus. You're turning your heart against the only begotten Son of God. The Old Testament speaks of him. Behold, a virgin shall give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. They shall divide his... So many prophecies. And he fulfilled every one of them in the birth. Surely you should listen to him. Who is this man, Jesus? Who is he that can do all of the scripture? And why would God tell us that so categorically? Why would God put so much there so that this guy Steiner could come up and say it's 10 to the power of 157? Why? Because he wants to convince you that this is something that you can have faith in. This is something that you can read that can change your life, that can, that, that can give you direction, that can help you. He wants you to put your faith in the word of God because God's word is for you today. The world will tell you, don't believe it. It's rubbish. You've got three proofs already that can shoot that into the ground. Here's the fourth one. The archaeological, geographical and historical accuracy of the Bible. What do we mean? Archaeological. It's the things that they dig up out of the ground. Geographical. The places where those things are dug up. The place where they dug them up. Historical. The time in history when they occurred this is a record of history, the Old Testament tells you about kings, it tells you about people, it tells you about places it, tells, it gives you their name and it gives you where they belong to, what kingdom they're over it tells you all the detail and if you go back through history, now we can surely find whether this is right, maybe this is just a fable that was made up, maybe we can find that there wasn't a guy called King David or maybe there wasn't a person or a group of people called the Hittites you know, it's all just a fable, it's all just made up so I don't have to believe it, so I don't have to do it, so I don't have to trust it, so I can say there is no god. But every time they dig, they find. And every time they find, we find that it's more credible. We have found no evidence of the that this is false. Every time they dig, they find evidence to the contrary. Every time they dig, they find that the names and the places and the cultures described in scripture actually existed actually were there they find it's credible they go back to it and say we can trust the words of this page because we found them at the bottom of a hole on a piece of clay etched in time dug up by somebody who was trying to disprove it let's have a look here's a case to ponder was there ever a place called sodom and gomorrah Well, we know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Who who can tell me the story of what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Put your hand up if you can tell me the story. I'm not going to ask you to do it. Okay. okay. We know that fire rained down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because they were Sodomites, homosexuals. And we don't, we don't even believe that existed. You know, people say there was never a Sodom and a Gomorrah. This is just a, a, a biblical fable. It's wrong to just to support your dogmatism against homosexuality. That's what they say. Until they dug it up. Okay, let's read something from Genesis, shall we? This is Abraham. He's just left his place and he's traveling with Lot to find the promised land. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. And Lot went with him. Lot was his, uh, was his brother-in-law. 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 So Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and, and in silver and gold um, from the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai. In fact, they found Ai. They said Ai never existed, and then they found the town called Ai. Amazing, hey? And where he, he and his tent had been earlier, he said there. and where he had first built an altar at Bethel, there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. So now Lot, who was moving about with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they, were to, they stayed together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together because they kept on fighting with each other. A quarreling arose between Abraham and the herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the time and they found all these places. So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any more quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen because we are brothers. He says, "Is not the land before you, uh, let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and he saw the whole plain of Jordan well watered like the garden of the Lord. Now, the reference is like the garden of the Lord. He's actually referring to it that when he looked down there, it was like the garden of Eden. The plain of Jordan. Like the land of Egypt towards Zohar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So now we've got Some information there. We've got some information that what it was like before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And so Lot chose for himself the whole plain of of the Jordan and set out towards the east and the two men parted company. Okay. So here we have skeptics and we have unbelievers saying there is no Sodom and Gomorrah. It never existed. There's no proof of it. So they started to have a look. Sodom and Gomorrah. They said, let's see if we can do a dig in the Jordan area near the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah were meant to be. What they found, the Bible refers to a metropolis of five cities in the Dead Sea. If you go to Genesis chapter 14 verse 2, it tells you there are five cities in the Jordan Valley there. Five. When they started to dig, guess how many city foundations they found? Five. The Bible refers to the conquest between the Mesopotamians. You go to Genesis chapter 14, verses 1, 8 to 9. Remember, Lot was carried away. People came and they attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and they took Lot and carried him away. And and Abraham, if you go and read, got his army together and went and chased these people and and he got back Lot and then they offered up gifts to Melchizedek, who was the the king of Salem. Remember that? That's in the Bible, yeah. Well, we go back there and we find that there was actually a conquest in those cities around about that same time and the Mesopotamians, which were the people who attacked those cities, were the ones they found their artifacts there, so they'd been there. Another proof that that had actually taken place. The Midrash, which is a Jewish history book, not part, of the, not part of Scripture, describes the metropolis as a thriving population with enormous numbers of burial in large cemeteries attesting the great population. They dug it up and they found all these grave sites. They were... We dig a grave, it's sort of like six foot long and it's and it's about six foot deep and it's long and wide. They used to dig them deep, six foot deep, and they used to drop them in long ways, into the into the grave long ways. So you have a big round hole that goes down six foot and they drop your body in there, dunk, and they drop bodies in on top of them. Well they found hundreds of thousands of graves along this place. So the city that was there was huge. It was a great city. They all joined together. Traded together, it was a wicked place. The Bible, the Talmud, the, the Talmud and the Midrash, which are, are historical Jewish books, describe the area as an agricultural wonderland. The great diversity of agricultural product found in the ruins were very lush. They're able to actually go back and say, "Look, we found parts of raisins. We found um, artifacts that that show us that there was huge agricultural areas going on. They're beautiful." And we find, and we just read that passage in, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, that said it was like the Garden of Eden. They've proven it with the dig. they found it at the dig. According to the Talmud, there was a span of only 26 years between the war, a war in the area, and the ultimate destruction. Devastation levels found in Numerera, which is Sodom, are consistent with Talmud's assertion. So they say, what happened is the Mesopotamians went in there, they did their little fight, they came out 25 years later, God destroyed the place. That's what they found. The Talmud also states that, that Sodom, unlike other cities in that area, only existed for 52 years. He said, and they found that the ruins in Sodom indicate that the city was less than 100 years old. Here's the big tester. Because if it was destroyed by fire and brimstone, what would you expect there to be? Ash. Ash. The Bible attributes the destruction of the cities to a fiery storm that rained down from above. Genesis 19, 13 to 29 the, la- the thick layers of burnt material covered the remainder of the city. cities in an area Bear this account So if you go to that website there, you'll find all that information It goes for pages They found a, a layer of ash over everything If you read through the book of Genesis You read how Sodom and Gomorrah went out to fight the kings And they ran through the plain of Jordan And in the plain of Jordan there were tar pits And some of the men fell into the tar pits and died The plain of Jordan is on a fault line there's a fault line running right through it. So we're told that when God smote that place, he broke it up like that, and the tar and stuff went down, and then it went up, was ignited in the air, and came down flaming on the inhabitants of the place. And when Abraham went and looked, Abraham went and looked to see what happened to Lot, he looked over the desolation and saw the smoke rising as, as, as coming out of a furnace. And they said it never happened. And you can go to the Dead Sea now, and you can find the ruins there, just like God said. Now, I want you to think about that. Don't throw this book out every time some science teacher tells you that you came from monkeys, and this is a whole lot of rubbish. You've got a great deal of proof to believe that this is the Word of God you have to throw out a whole lot of historical geog- geographic graphical and agricultural finds to disprove it. it is a statement of truth is what god has said but that's not the only reason here's another one here's the fifth one jesus endorsed the bible as being the word of god you know when jesus sat down he his disciples came to him and he says you have heard it said and he started to preach from the Old Testament. He said, God said to you in the Old Testament. Here we have Jesus. Jesus came in the fulfillment of prophecy, 10 to the power of 157. You can't. He's just the one that comes from God. He's been foretold. He's come in fulfillment of the scripture. So you want to listen to him when he speaks. Whatever Jesus says, it's got to be, got to be valid because he is the one that's come from God. And when he says the Old Testament is the word of God, That's what it is. In Exodus chapter 20, when he said, God spoke to the children of Israel and he gave them these commandments. God actually spoke. It was his word. Remember, he's fighting now the devil, and the devil's coming and asking whether he's the son of God. He says these words. Jesus said it, and he's talking about the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. What's he talking to? He's talking about the word that you have here. That's the word of God. It proceedeth out of the word of God. It comes out of God's. Don't doubt it. Oh, the world will say, You just doubt it. Just throw it away. You know, do whatever you want to do. Don't believe it. Don't run. You know what? You have to run and become stupid to believe that this is rubbish because you have to throw away so much fact and so much proof that this is the word of God. And if you live your life and you don't listen to it, you will break your life because this this book will help you live right before God. You look at the world today, look how broken the world is. You look how smashed the world is and why is it smashed and why is it broken and why are all the lives falling apart now and going to hell? Because they threw the book out. They threw it out and said, we don't want to listen to God. And God loves us so much he wants to tell us how to live and how to live right and how to live well. And we want to throw it out and say, it doesn't exist. We have to turn our brain off, stop thinking. We have to start throwing it all away and become stupid in our heads and say, it doesn't exist. When history, when when the archaeological finds show us, this is God's word. I'm going to back up some. We've only gone halfway through this. The weight of evidence that this being the word of God is so strong that there's something that you ought to think about. You ought to think about how it applies to your life. What you need to do about it. We've learned today the perseverance of manuscripts shows quite clearly that this is the word of God. We've learned today that the evidence of miracles proved to the people who heard the word of God that it was God who was speaking to them. The incredible prophetical evidence of Jesus and of the other things that was prophesied. Even today we see prophecy fulfilled. Every time you look at the news, the, everything happening today in the Middle East, it's all prophecy being fulfilled. It's all happening just as the Bible said. The archaeological, geographical and historical accuracy of the Bible is without question shows us that this is the word of God. And Jesus said when he was here, this is the word of God. Something to think about. You know, last week I talked to you about Psalm 19 and the first few verses talked about creation speaking to us, talking to us about the very wonderful things of God. Verse 7 in creation talks about special revelation. The first part of uh, uh, Psalm 19 talks about general revelation and creation. The second part talks about God's special word to us. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statues of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The the ordinances of the Lord are sure, And altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than the honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Today, in this century, one of the most important things that you have to remember is that you have to keep the Word of God. You'll go to universities, young people. And when you go into the universities, the first thing that will be attacked will be the, your confidence in the Word of God, your faith in Jesus. Every lie from the pit of hell is being spewed out to try and get you to disbelieve what's written in here. If they persuade you to do that, your life will be ruined, not only here, but your life will be ruined in eternity. This is good for your soul. This is God's word for your heart. This is God speaking to you in your time and in your place, saying, "Listen to me, I have a plan for you." Now, I can't make you believe it. Even the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus doing incredible signs and miracles, they didn't believe. They couldn't you know they saw Lazarus raised from the dead. And rather than think, well, we got it all wrong, we just saw a dead man get raised to life again, they went away and plotted how they could kill Jesus and how they could kill Lazarus. It was like they didn't want to believe. They didn't choose to believe. You're at the same place today. You have to make a choice here with regard to where you are. You know, there's evidence to, clear evidence to prove that this is the word of God. This is God spe- speaking to you today. From, from the pages of this book. He's saying to you, believe me and trust me, put your faith in me, fear me and walk with me and I will keep you safe. You know what you can do? You can choose not to believe that. You can choose to run and say, well, you know what? It's all too hard. I would rather have fun. I would rather play the game. I would rather go out and do what everybody else is doing out there. The word of God will not change. It will still be there. And when you're dead, it will stay in there. And it will speak to you. And it will, it will remind you of today, of a time when you heard of five fingerprints of God on this book. And it will remind you, what did you do to express faith in that word? You, I can't make you believe this. Your heart will grasp it or you will throw it. But if you throw it, it will be the worst thing that you do. Take it, read it, meditate on it, ponder it, let it change your life. Invite the Lord of the word into your spirit and let him lead you and guide you so that you can be a light in the dark place. Because I'm sure there's other people who want to know what the truth is, who don't know what the truth is. And are bleeding to know what the truth is. And you can tell them, hey, there's five reasons why you can have confidence in this book. And you can say, These are the five reasons. Here they are. Next week I'm going to give you another five. At the end of this month, on the thirty first, which is a Tuesday night, we're going to have a workshop at Fitzy's We've booked the place now. We could only take forty people. We've already got twenty plus. If you want to come to the workshop, I'm going to, we're going to teach you how to learn these 15 things. There's five from last week, five from this week, and five from next week, so that you have them here in your mind, and you can get go like that. So that when you talk to somebody who needs to know this, you'll be able to draw on them straight away, and you'll be able to give them straight away. They'll be there. We want to equip you to be able to give an answer for your faith in the Word of God. We want to equip you to say that you can say, look at creation. It speaks to you of God. Look at the Word of God. Here are ten fingerprints of God all over this book. This is why you can have confidence. Now, if you want to go to that, you need to contact um, Stacy or talk to maybe Liz and let them get your name down so that, that uh, we, can, we can make sure that we've got enough. If we have to get a, a, a bigger place, and it's not just for our people. If, you want, if you've got people from other churches that you think that you'd like to bring along, bring them along. We want to do this. We want to help people to understand that they have something they can believe in and give them some strength to do that. So that's on the 31st. That's Tuesday the 31st at the end of this month. Um, let either Liz or, or Stacy know if you want to come along so we can write your name down. Like I said, we've, we've only got 40 seats there. We want to know if we've got to get more, we want to know uh, that we have to get something, a bigger venue, okay? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the proofs of your word. We thank you for the evidence that you have so clearly laid out before us. Lord, man is without excuse when it comes to believing, Father. You have made it so clear to us. You've been so precise, Father. Lord, I ask, O God, that you would help us to grasp the enormity of the evidence that is placed before us, Father, and express simple faith in you, Lord. Help us to walk each day with you, Lord Jesus. Help us to have confidence in your word. Lord, to trust it when it speaks to us, to obey it, to do it. And Father, we ask, oh God, that you strengthen us for the task before us. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you.